0: Welcome to Jersey Gives a Dam, a conversation with the innovators, leaders, and changemakers making New Jersey's communities stronger. I'm Erin Turner, Chief Philanthropic Officer at the Community Foundation of New Jersey, where it is our privilege to help hundreds of philanthropically minded New Jerseyans have the greatest impact on the causes and communities they care about. Today, we're going to do something a little different. CFNJ is starting a webinar series in which we bring in experts for deep dives on important topics for the benefit of our fundholders. And we recently hosted one on the issue of human trafficking, which is a problem globally and in New Jersey. We brought in experts from the New Jersey Coalition Against Human Trafficking, the Sonar Institute, Covenant House New Jersey, and Legal Services of New Jersey, a collection of organizations committed to preventing trafficking and supporting survivors. We are sharing a recording of that webinar here. While it's a really tough issue, there are reasons for hope. And I'm very confident you will learn something new about this important issue like I did. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the CFNJ webinar on human trafficking. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Erin Turner, Chief Philanthropic Officer at the Community Foundation of New Jersey. We expect to do these webinars on a quarterly basis where we'll highlight critical social issues, the work being done on them, and ways for our fundholders and partners to engage. Our goal is not just to raise awareness, but also inspire and accelerate direct action. Human trafficking is a global epidemic that affects millions of lives around the world and is a massive challenge here in New Jersey. We'll spend the next hour trying to understand this issue, its causes and drivers, what's being done currently, and what we all can do to prevent and confront it. Here's our agenda. you see we have a lot to pack in and some great folks to share with us. We are so pleased to have the following experts with us to share their knowledge and reflect on their years of service in this work. Kate Lee, Executive Director of the New Jersey Coalition Against Human Trafficking, whose mission is to unite the state's communities to end human trafficking. They do this by organizing, speaking events, outreach, educational programs, and policy advocacy. Sarah Lott, Chief Impact Officer at the Sonar Institute, which provides direct transformational trauma healing services to survivors of human trafficking in Northern New Jersey. Jim White, who until very recently served as Executive Director of Covenant House New Jersey, a safe space that creates individualized programs for young people facing homelessness and human trafficking survivors. And Anissa Rahim, Vice President and Supervising Attorney of the Protect Anti-Trafficking Initiative at Legal Services of New Jersey, a statewide project providing legal representation to serve victims of human trafficking throughout New Jersey. Kate, we'll kick it off to you to explain and define human trafficking for us.
1: Thank you so much. And before I begin, I just want to share that two of the core values that we have at the New Jersey Coalition Against Human Trafficking is survivor inclusion, but also compassion. This is a difficult topic, and we do recommend that our compassion extends to everybody, those who are victims and survivors, those who do the work to help, and everybody learning about it. So as it's difficult, please Exercise your own self-care if you need to step away. If you're finding this difficult, and you might find it difficult as you learn how close to home it is. That we completely understand that. So, first slide. What is human trafficking? It's a relatively new crime. Honestly, it's it's only 23 years in definition. And so, when you think, well, I never used to hear about it, that's because you never used to hear about it. It's enshrined in the United States under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, and also in the United Nations under the Palermo Protocol. And the basic definition is this: that It is the recruitment, transportation, harbouring or receipt of people through force, fraud or coercion just with the aim of exploiting them for profit. Force, fraud or coercion, we hear an awful lot or see a lot about force in the media, but fraud and coercion or coercion, any one of the three is valid, are just as important. Fraud might mean something like a fake job offer or a false promise of love. And coercion could mean blackmail or threats against a family. And as you learn more, you'll recognise that these are very much in play. Um, However, in the legal definition, minors don't have to show that any force, fraud, or coercion was in play. So if, for example, say somebody's under the age of 18, they're a 17-year-old found in a situation of commercial sexual exploitation, they are automatically a victim of human trafficking. This crime is mostly about money. It is the second most profitable, the second largest and fastest growing criminal activity in the world. Some people put it at 150 billion a year. We just don't know the numbers because the statistics are very hard to come by but it is a very high return and low risk high return because unfortunately you can sell a person over and over again and low risk which you'll learn about because victims are coerced into silence the two major kinds if you like are sex trafficking and labor trafficking but there are many forms within that and it affects boys, girls, men and women of all ages, and they can sometimes be both sex trafficked and labor trafficked. We have to also establish what is not human trafficking. And I would love if lots of journalists were on the, the call today because they so often make mistakes. And the way to really understand, and I think it's difficult, the words human trafficking are complex. They just sort of make you think that movement is part of it, but it's not the same as smuggling. So if you like to think of it this way, Human trafficking is a crime against a person, whereas smuggling is a crime against a border, a a country, like somebody being smuggled across into the United States. And in fact, human trafficking doesn't even require any physical movement. Sadly, we have situations of people being trafficked in their own homes by their own family members. So it's in New Jersey. And why is it here? And I'm going to immediately sound like I'm contradicting myself because here we are talking about a state which has so many places you can move around in. It's got this I-95 corridor on easy access. So although no movement is required, movement is often chosen by the traffickers to stay ahead of law enforcement. So that is why, again, it happens more where there's good connectivity. But it also happens, it follows population. Where there's more people, there'll be more trafficking. It's happening everywhere. And here we are in New Jersey, we're very densely packed, into the state. We're the most densely populated state. And we're also sandwiched between New York City and Philadelphia. Also, we we know that trafficking can happen when there is a high demand. And that might be because we've got Atlantic City, a big tourist destination, and we also host large scale events. And I just want to share some instances of it's happening here so that there's no doubt in your mind that it truly is right here where we are. So Atlantic City just mentioned where we recently had the highest sentence. The coalition was very instrumental in passing a big law in 2013 in New Jersey, which massively increased the penalties, which we hope would help curb demand. And we're great. It's really great to see these really high sentences. But you can also see things that they are sexual exploitation and they can become trafficking, such as when somebody is luring young people online. And we had, if you recall, a big case of labor trafficking in central Jersey. We had a massive case where 222 people charged in Bergen County. That was in 2021. That involved 50 victims in Bergen County. Finally, just just back right home in Morris County for those of you who are local to here you know we had a 40 year prison sentence in 2019 also when we teach about human trafficking we want to emphasize that there are many routes i mean it's happening anywhere and everywhere but it's also happening online wherever there is somebody to be manipulated and that can be online the traffickers will go and traffickers are really quite expert unfortunately at getting uh, getting getting the trust of their potential victims. So for example, they will find a way into a young person's life. And you'll understand that young people are, are very, very vulnerable to being trafficked because they they will trust people. They will um, seek help. And if they're having trouble with a family member, they'll maybe complain online and, and get a sympathetic ear. Uh, and that's how a trafficker might find their way into someone's life. They'll offer them likes and sort of boost them, making them feel a bit more more positive about themselves, but it's really with a with ill intent. And you know, in, in real life, you might see them giving gifts um, and making them feel that that the, the victim is feeling very special and very wanted. Online, that could be just giving them a gaming uh, V-Bucks for uh, the game Fortnite or other ways of giving online gifts. Um, and they're really there to be, you know, answering those questions, supporting and complimenting. And then it all turns. Uh, then it just flips around and it leads to the threats, the coercion, land in sextortion, which is sort of, a, if you like, a gateway to trafficking, which is exploitation by threatening to expose either very sensitive photographs, explicit photographs or videos. And there can be sexual exploitation and trafficking. So it can sort of then manifest into the real world. People wonder why does no one leave if they've got a cell phone? Why don't they just call nine one one? What what's going on here? And it's because of this this general tactic that is co- coercive control. These tactics are things like the gift gimmick giving means now now you owe me, you have to pay me back. Convincing the victim that it's their fault, uh, that no one else is going to love them, making them feel shame. Actually, physical things like food deprivation, sleep deprivation, and uh, making them feel powerless. A forced drug taking, which actually is both controlling somebody, but the victims will welcome anything that numbs their experience, or the horror that they're experiencing. But they're really feeling like they've got nowhere to go. They're degraded and their wills are broken. And this trauma bond develops that will mean the victim will actually not report. They will not call out. If in an ER, they will not say something is happening to them because of this trauma bond. And I just want to finally leave you with one of the many resources we have on our website that you can just recognize are things that maybe you're not thinking about in terms of force. This is about people who won't speak, who seem exhausted. This is where we want to talk about compassion and understanding that people are going through most horrific experiences and they might not ever be able to say anything to you, but just you as a human person can understand compassion is needed. This is what they are dealing with. We in the coalition do not talk about rescue ever. Only a survivor, only a victim survivor can rescue themselves. So we try to ensure that what we want to bring is compassion so that that shame and fear isn't dominating the lives of somebody when they come away from trafficking, which is what we hope that they all do. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kate. Sarah, will you share now the work of the Sonar Institute and the impact of trafficking in New Jersey? So my name is Sarah Law. I'm with the Sanar
2: Institute. Sanar means to heal in Spanish, and that is primarily what we focus on. It might be helpful to talk about some myths that we hear a lot about human trafficking. The one that we hear a lot is that sex trafficking is the quote-unquote real problem, that labor trafficking either isn't traumatic or it's not like as big of a deal. And that's something that we want to dispel right away. Labor trafficking can be just as traumatic as sex trafficking. see a lot of labor trafficking in our area. Another myth that we hear about a lot, perpetuated by the media, if anyone has seen the movie Taken, a lot of people think of that when they think of human trafficking, right? They think of kidnapping. They think about things they read about on the internet, about people being trafficked from the Target parking lot. And the reality is that kidnapping is not a common form of recruitment domestically for either sex or labor trafficking. It's just not something that we see very commonly. We also hear a lot about chains being confined or held, and that's also, confinement is not a requirement for trafficking. Many survivors don't feel that they can leave because of that coercive control factor that Kate mentioned, but they're not often like chained in a a location that they need to be like rescued or freed from. And as Kate mentioned, it does not have to involve movement. We work with survivors right here in New Jersey who were born and raised in New Jersey who were trafficked right in their own backyard. One other thing just to touch on is about labor trafficking through forced criminality. Lots of folks are trafficked through the drug trade. There is a misconception that some people think that if you're involved in an illegal activity or if something isn't like cash necessarily, trading hands or a legal service, that that person can't be a victim, that they have to be complicit. And labor trafficking through forced criminality is something that we see a lot in our area. For the Sonar Institute, we serve a higher level of labor trafficking survivors or individuals who've experienced both sex and labor trafficking. Over 40% of our survivors are Latino survivors of human trafficking. This is because we provide culturally specific services. We have six Spanish-speaking staff, and it's very helpful for survivors to be able to work with individuals who look like them, who are from their communities, so that's some thing that we take really seriously. So sometimes if you're wondering about that difference in data, that is the likely reason. 40% of our survivors that we serve at SNR are between 13 and 24 years old. And over 83% of survivors have experienced some other type of, of victimization or violence in their lifetime. For most, that is an adverse childhood experience like childhood sexual abuse or child abuse or neglect or domestic and family violence. We focus a lot on trauma healing services as a method of prevention at SNR, Working with individuals, who have experienced adverse childhood experiences and also human trafficking, looking at it from a cycle-breaking perspective that treating the trauma that they've experienced will help break the cycles of violence. As Kate mentioned, it's really important to understand that an unfortunate reality is that most individuals who experience human trafficking are trafficked by someone that they know, someone that they trust, uh, someone that they love a lot of times, someone who might be posing as an intimate partner to gain their trust. That's why we talk a lot about cycle-breaking and talking about the breaking of trauma bonds and Stockholm syndrome, because it's not as easy as like demonizing a perpetrator of violence. There's a lot that Who goes into building these relationships and holding that control over someone. A quick word on internet recruitment. This is a really rapidly rising rate of victimization. John Pizarro, who is a former 25-year veteran investigator for child abuse crimes, was recently quoted in Forbes and said that it's a pandemic, that they can't keep up with the amount of cases, that New Jersey's increase has been over 400% in the last four years for internet-based grooming crimes. And the FBI also recently issued an alert warning the public about groups that are specifically targeting youth victims, especially queer youth, youth of color, and those who struggle with suicidal ideation to get them to create childhood sexual abuse materials. So one of the things that when we talk about human trafficking in public, something that comes up a lot is people asking like, what can we do? How can we intervene if we think that this is happening? And as Kate mentioned, it's really important to remember a lot of times when we hear about human trafficking, media can perpetuate a rescue myth. The idea that that these individuals need to be saved and that someone external needs to like swoop in and solve this problem. And the reality is that most survivors don't need to be rescued. They need resources. They need access to the things that can help them to keep themselves safe. But survivors are the experts in their own experience. So what I would say for people who are wondering like what I can do, what they can do is just being the presence of a caring, empathetic listener who's non-judgmental, who who is willing to help when asked makes the most significant difference in the lives of the survivors we've served. And we've heard that over and over from survivors that the person who really helped them exit their trafficking situation oftentimes wasn't someone you'd expect like a law enforcement or in a hospital. It might be the administrative assistant at a front desk of somewhere that they were who really cared and looked at them like a person and listened to what they were going through. So last but not least, the impacts of trafficking. So we know that human trafficking survivors can experience a whole host of physical impacts from their trafficking. But at Sonar, we're primarily focused on the mental health impacts of of human trafficking and the trauma. That individuals have experienced. Survivors of human trafficking are at an increased risk for depression, anxiety. PTSD, addiction, 41% of human trafficking survivors have CPTSD, which means that transformational trauma healing services like we provide at Sonar are really critical in helping survivors to avoid re-traumatization, being re-trafficked, and also to really be able to, to embrace their lives and go into lives that are, are truly thriving after the trauma that they've experienced.
0: Sarah, uh, can you just define CPTSD?
2: Sure. So it's complex post-traumatic stress and that's all for me. So again, this is just a little bit about
0: the Snar Institute. We're located in Newark, New Jersey. Jim, you're up next with interventions and mitigation.
3: First, want to thank my sisters here on the panel and partners in the work. We know that it takes you know everybody to to coordinate and and to work together. And I can speak on behalf of everyone here that they really do a beautiful job and working collaboratively. We we have to do that in order to face this complex problem that seems to be growing. My name is Jim White. I was the ED at Covenant House, and I've been at Covenant House for 41 years. We've seen so many of our young people suffer from human trafficking. About 15% to 12% of our young people who we serve at Covenant House nationwide experience human trafficking. So this is an area that we've really gotten a lot more involved in. Covenant House deals with uh, homeless runaway and trafficked young people between the ages of 18 to 22. And really what we've learned over time as we've developed our programs, they really came as I think what we're learning in human, tra- it's coming organically, which means not a prescription of service, but rather an engagement, a connection you heard, you know, from Sarah, but others you'll hear too is about this caring person in their lives. And so when you do that and you don't prescribe but you'd kind of sit and listen, then the diagnosis or the prescription, if I may, comes. And that's where all these programs really came out of. It was a learning of what our young people needed. So came from that, a mothers and babies program. We found a lot of moms as well. So that's really kind of the birth of this and the same philosophy we took over with human trafficking. So we've been serving young people who experience human trafficking. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because young people who find themselves alone on the street are extremely vulnerable. We have a program at Covenant House for our young people that says, if it's too good to be true, it is. And it's just that conversation about, well, they were nice. And, it's, and our kids are highly vulnerable to experiencing human trafficking. And so we, we have gotten really involved because, again, we're saying our kids are in this, this world. We need to do more. And so that kind of pulled us into this work in a much deeper way. We're currently funded by the attorney general's office to be the lead agency in New Jersey when a intervention is done by police, we're asked to come in and to help the survivors. And I wanna be clear on that. We're the first person in, but we are clearly not the last person out. Everybody on this call and beyond this call all the service providers in New Jersey, we work together and collaboratively to figure out what services they need that's appropriate to them. So that network of, of what we're doing as as agencies together is really vital for the care. We play the point role, but clearly everybody here on the screen and beyond are really helping us to provide those m- much needed services. So when you really, really care, you get good. And so one of the things that we really did was now the largest longitudinal study on human trafficking in the country. And we did it here in New Jersey. And we worked with Mount Sinai as a partner to come up with some of these things. And I would ask if you're really interested in this and wanna kind of peel the onion a little bit, please go to our website and read this report. We have an executive summary, but there's some amazing information that some of it has already been shared and I'm sure we'll continue to share. Just some of the highlights of that. Caring adult is a mitigating factor for human trafficking. When studying and identifying young people who experience human trafficking, they had less connections with a caring adult. Forced criminality or labor trafficking, right? 40% roughly are are experiencing labor trafficking, 60% on, on sex trafficking. And that is seriously traumatizing in this labor. So in this study, I'll just go quickly, is one of the things that we were able to develop which we're extremely excited about, is a thing called the QUIT, which is the Quick Youth Indicator for Trafficking. It's a trauma-informed screening process that helps us identify survivors of human trafficking. And now we're working with agencies around the country and even now in Latin America in developing this tool. What we found was in talking to our other partners, they'd say, oh, no, we don't need it. We know experience in human trafficking. We have five girls in our program." The study says 40% of human trafficking in our environment are males. How about this? We found that 40% of the people who experienced human trafficking while they were experiencing human trafficking were in a medical institution, emergency room, or a hospital. So now we're working with Robert Wood Johnson and St. Barnabas to help them start to identify these young people. We served 156 survivors of human trafficking last year. Now, we feel good about that, but there is so much more, and we all know that, as we shared it. So we need to do a better job of indicating those people who survive uh, human trafficking who are survivors, right? So that's really essential, and it's one of our key missions as we go forward. There's shame connected to it, right? There's fear. There's coercion. When we did a small sample of 50 of our young people who experienced human trafficking, and they were in our services, and we were working with them. None of them wanted to prosecute, didn't want to do it, or wanted it further behind them. And they weren't ready to do it. Now, working with partners like Sunar and others, as we build rapport and connection and they get stable, perhaps that will happen. Because we're prioritizing the survivor, this courageous person who's stepping out of the darkness, we really focus on how do we help them to move forward in their lives. So study is so important. The other study that we just concluded was forced criminality and it's worth talking about. A lot of our young people at the age of 14, 15 were forced into criminal activity. They're then arrested or dealt with as a criminal. To be clear, they are coerced and forced into this labor that's trafficking. And yet they're now treated like a criminal and they move to the age of 18, they're identified as a criminal and they're not getting the services and care that we need. So we're trying to be a voice for them and give them voice, which is so important, and you'll hear more about as well. So if you really want to look at the math, look at our website, CovenantHouseNewJersey.org.
0: Can you just talk about quickly the the screening tool? Can you give an example of a question, or maybe all five quickly? What's
3: important to know, what does trauma-informed mean? I think people are going, what does that really mean? So what happens is, often what we've learned is that by our entry-level or intake workers quizzing, it can re-traumatize. Many young people have been forced to do work for not getting paid. And has that ever kind of happened to you? So it's it's a yes or no kind of thing. It's a screening tool, which means when we do this screening tool, about 80 percent of the people who go positive for this test, we move them to highly trained social workers and lawyers who are sensitized and can start to take a look at that and then they're brought into that relationship professional relationship and more is explored 20 who are aren't human trafficking so it's just a screening tool we don't want to open up the real issue if we're not positioned and ready to handle it and as we work with other nonprofits serving this we, we're working with them to say look this isn't a math thing this is a compassion care thing as you heard from the new jersey coalition right this is a compassion thing so Make sure that if you do identify, you're able to provide the care that's necessary, but it just helps us indicate who possibly could in a non-invasive way so that we can transition them to the pros who really know how to do that well. The referrals come from the hotline, they come from law enforcement, they come from our partners in the community. Come in. Often young people come in and they don't even know they were survivors, they just talk about their experience and we go, oh, that's essential. And we're still expanding the communication. There's so many people and I'm glad that we were able to really talk about and Kate was able to tell you what human trafficking is so that we can start to identify and bring them in and provide them the services. What do they need? And we always say, what's the loving thing to do? So we look at them, we talk to them, and some of them need a bus ticket. Some of them need all sorts of things. But what we first do is connect and let them know there's somebody who cares. And how do we build transportation, documentation, housing, court around law enforcement, safety, transportation, I got to get out of this place, those kind of things as well. We connect them to SNAR or to legal services or to our partners in the community. I think that's a good place to end because, again, It's about this net that can can provide the various services. You know, we're not legal experts. We tap into that. Sonar is phenomenal at engaging and helping them deal with the significant trauma that they experience. We approach this humbly. We are not done.
0: Nisa, you're up to talk with us about legal services of New Jersey and the policy landscape around the issue.
4: So our project had legal services has been around for 55 years, but it was only in 2020 that we launched our protect initiative specifically to serve this population. And as you'd heard earlier, it was to try to do it holistically and comprehensively to serve both sex and labor trafficking victims, and as well as to serve both minors and adults regardless of their immigration status. So there's some general information just about our project in our website so you can look at that but i have been with legal services for about 15 years and as you know it's been around for a long time but i think it's been very surprising to see the kinds of needs and issues that have arisen within this particular project and the uniqueness of, of working with this population as you've heard there's a number of players that are usually involved in a particular survivor's life and so that notably, I think we always think of you know the criminal justice system, of law enforcement as usually sort of the first point in terms of human trafficking, because it's a crime. But as you've heard, it's also crisis and social service providers who are providing emergent needs like housing, shelter, food, so forth. And then I think what often gets overlooked is the possibility of civil legal assistance and the importance of that. And having lawyers who are sort of outside of, say, the criminal system, but also have some understanding of the criminal system to be able to protect client rights as they're interfacing with all these different entities. And that's where we hope to, to come in for, for these cases. Since our project has launched, I mean, we have opened up over 700 civil cases on a variety of issues on behalf of our clients that come to us. And I'll so I'll just go through in terms of just the list. I mean, it's problems that we didn't even foresee would be necessarily issues. Clients have issues, of course, with safety and security. Many of them have language barriers, uh, We have a lot of immigrant clients who either don't are undocumented or have precarious status. Clients may come to us with issues of criminal records for prostitution, but also other related charges, drug-related charges, even petty offenses, so forth. It It can be a varying list. Clients have a lack of access to government benefits, just not even being able to enroll if they are eligible on the government benefits that are available to them, whether it's charity care, Medicaid, SNAP, so forth. Crime compensation. They might be part of these cases and yet not even know that they are eligible for these funds. That is also an issue. Wage theft. We often see clients who are working for a long time, never receiving money or receiving very little money and not knowing that they have a right to file suits to be able to recover that money. Those clients also incur debt. So that can be for what they pay to be able to, to even enter into these trafficking situations, ironically. And then also it can be other kinds of debt they incur, like medical debt, if they are abused or injured. Clients have a lot of difficulty navigating the criminal justice system. Even for the smartest of us, it's hard to understand, much less for people who are in the height of a lot of panic and tension as they're as they're working with sort of very intimidating situations. And Kaylee had shared some of the the headlines. We've worked with clients in some of those situations who have been been in these big cases. Unpaid taxes, those are something you wouldn't even think but tax can be an issue. Somebody who's never paid taxes for years because they were trafficked and then now have, have all kinds of issues with credit and scoring. So in terms of legal remedies, I mean, what we do, I mean, we have a unit of six people, but we also work within just the civil legal aid landscape, as well as sometimes even private attorneys who may be interested in taking on bigger cases. But we're working to get clients, you know, they might need family law remedies. So they might need protection orders. They might need custody, divorce, name changes, language access, right? Making sure that they're provided interpreters and translated materials with government government agencies, and also while they're served by organizations. We do a lot of immigration work, and so there is a remedy specifically for trafficking victims called T-Visas as well as special immigrant juvenile status petitions you can do for a lot of the unaccompanied minors because we're working with clients who are trafficked both within New Jersey, sometimes they're coming from other states, sometimes they're coming from other countries. So it again, it's really a global problem. Clients might need help with vacature and expungement. The law was expanded last year through the work of a lot of you know advocates and so that also is a remedy that people are not aware of that they can clear criminal records. Accessing public benefits, we find clients, you know often it's frontline workers may not be aware of what these remedies are for trafficking victims. And just sometimes it's interfacing with government agencies. Victims' crime and compensation funds, applying for those, as I said, filing the wage claims, making consumer claims, being there for criminal justice support and advocacy, where we do a lot of work with prosecutors, where we're talking to them and trying to protect our clients, but also helping them understand what the case is. And, you know, human trafficking is one of those crimes that's under prosecuted for a variety of reasons. There's a number of issues, whether it's not identified, whether it's dropping out. There's a lot of support that's needed, I think, to really see a criminal case through. And then finally, as we said, just tax assistance. There's more and more legislation that's coming through that's protecting trafficking victims that really a lot of advocates and clients themselves need to be aware of, but they need to get connected to the right resources. One of the things that we found is that there is just a real lack of identification of human trafficking, You know, even if the the Trafficking Victims Protection Act has been around for over 20 years, it's not really well known. The definition itself is not very well known. It is really rare for us to have clients who come to us as self identified victims or survivors. Often, what we're working with is referrals, whether it's, you know, Covenant House, it's SNAR, it's another community member. It's somebody who has often identified that person as being someone who needs services. So, it's rare to have somebody say, Oh, I'm a victim of trafficking and I'm calling you. And I think the second piece to that is that it's Often, a lack of identification of even those working in, say, government agencies, even other providers, even other lawyers. I mean, there's just a lot of people who don't know very much about human trafficking, which is why a session like this is so important, is because there's just a great need for this awareness. The multidisciplinary collaborative approaches is such a big part of this work. I mean, no one entity ever has the answer, can ever be the one who can really fully address all the range of needs that come up. So, I think working in conjunction with all these different groups and as a team is what What we have found has been the most successful outcome for the cases that that we've done. There really needs to be more resources for service provision, human trafficking survivors, and that's both civil legal assistance and it's case management. You know, this is an area that often is, has a lot of flux with the funding. And so it helps when there is continuity in funding, because you can assure these clients' needs are being met and that there's always going to be resources. And then the second piece too, is that I really feel that it should be county-based. I mean, I think right now there's a handful of providers in the state, and I have no doubt that there is much more trafficking, many more victims and survivors than we ever see. And that's just because the more that people know about it, the more cases you get. And it just is one of those things that the more outreach there is, the more training there is, the more you're going to find that there is a need there. And I think the way that domestic violence, I started as a domestic violence attorney, there needs to be that same level of resources and awareness as, as there is for human trafficking throughout every county in a very localized way so that it's not only just a handful of providers who are doing this work. And I'd say finally, I hope that this work also, it just aligns with other broader movements. I mean, in legal services, we see there's a lot of access to council movements and say housing rights. But I think that, you know, human trafficking needs to be seen not as just a one-off or this is happening only in certain corners, but that it's really a systematic problem and it's not about to go away because as you've heard about, it is so profitable. Uh, I'll stop there.
0: How can fund holders support this work? And I'm sure there are a myriad of ways folks can connect both with their philanthropic dollars and perhaps with volunteer time.
1: This is one of the un- most underfunded areas. We're talking about county-based work. This is not funded adequately. This is not a statewide problem. It's a. It should be dealt with at the county level. The coalition itself is a volunteer-based organization currently. We hope to sustain that, but our strategic plan is calling for, eventually, for the executive director role to actually be a paid one one day, hopefully to make it sustainable as an organization. R- right now, we spend most of our dollars, on ensuring that we have survivor voices for every single thing and not voices that you'll hear but people who are working behind the scenes when we're making our videos and our PSAs we've got a couple of great PSAs survivors usually make up the majority of the participants in planning those things whether it's written a video whatever it is so we employ a lot of survivors that's that's the biggest use of our money but we would love to obviously expand our operations and we also have a specific dedicated fund which is our survivor assistance fund they've moved on. They're trying to build their lives. But, you know, one small thing can knock anybody off track. Um, a One small thing for a survivor of human trafficking could knock them back to the place where they choose or they go back to trafficking because they've got no other way to support their family. If maybe they didn't get all those criminal records expunged, maybe there's other things, but we are there for that car payment. Even if it's a, a scholarship payment or a it's a payment for a, a term of of college work or a medical bill, we have that specific fund for that. It's not it's not very big of a fund. It could be way bigger. Uh, and we help survivors, not just in New Jersey, but around the country. And I should say that all of our survivors are joining us from around the country because there are so many kinds of trafficking that you need different types of people to share about expertise, about what how it happened to them. Because how else can you prevent it happening? We have great programs for schools. We're about to do a program October the 9th, a professional development Because teachers are supposed to be teaching this in the health and PE classes, but they don't really realize it's a new standard and we're really trying to help them. We've got the lesson plan for them. They're not quite sure what human trafficking really is in order to implement the lesson plan. So I would also say, you know, like I mentioned with Anissa, we've got a piece of legislation we're about to drop. Hopefully it will be ready for the new year. So people who have connections, uh, we want to have as many uh, co-sponsors on that bill as possible. So there's just so much. Our website has got it all. And you know you can even just join our legislative committee or join our outreach committee and just add your time, not just your treasure or instead of your treasure. We, we just want everybody involved. And I'd also say, do think about bringing a survivor to educate as well. They are the best at educating on this topic. They really are the ones that know the details. So our, our website is safernj.org. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Kate. Anissa, Anissa, Sarah, Jim, anyone else other ideas on how folks can get involved?
3: You know, I think you should maybe hit the websites of everybody here on the screen and others or talk to us. I wouldn't go off and run, do your own thing. There's a lot of good, competent people. We've committed our lives to this. I think there's an opportunity for co-creation. There's an opportunity if you have a real interest in education or prevention or anything that you get pulled to that you want to make an investment in. I think you should do your homework. I think you should talk to people in the know and co-create how best you can use your money. Be open to the co-creation as well. So I, I can't believe I'm not asking for money for Covenant House. But I think it's really important if you do feel passionately about this, get smart, right? Start to connect to us. We're always open. I know everybody here is. and. You know, Aaron and the, and the community fund—they're great. they they know our work. They know the collaborators. They know uh, a lot of us. So that's a good place to start as well. I'm not going to ask for money. I'm going to ask for you to to get smart about your investment in this really important work.
4: Yeah, I guess I would just add on top of that, I absolutely agree that I think that, you know, the working with this population requires certain skill sets of being trauma-informed, of understanding the resources. And so it is the kind of thing that I think if there's expertise in the field to try to help amplify that expertise. And we have brought on survivors through the coalition to train our staff in the same way that then if we do a training, we have informed by those perspectives. And so I think that any work, that any investment that you do should be thinking along those lines of how to Support the work that's happening,
0: can you talk a little bit more about the subtle start to being trafficked? Presumably, it's subtle and gradual in the earlier stages. Can you speak to a little bit more about what that looks like?
1: We have a lot of survivors that come to the table, and so they often do share. We don't like, though, I would say, to repeat back survivor stories. It's kind of not uh, how we operate. and I, I thank our survivor consultant for always keeping us on track. But I would say it can subtly happen at school. It can subtly happen with somebody who you think is your boyfriend. There's a tactic called predatory alienation where they might then try to separate you from your loved ones and your friends. Only they are the person who you are talking to, saying that your your family is hurting you and then getting an injunction against them and saying that they can't uh, come near you and claiming that they have done something wrong. So again, they work to separate. We talk about the threats and coercion I think with young people, particularly what we see, and this is shown by a lot of data, is that kids, they're so wonderful, our young people, they try so hard to protect their families and to not have their families feel, you know, that they've let them down. So they try to fix their problems themselves. And by trying to fix their problems, they can get themselves further and further into trouble because that's what the trafficker knows, that they're going to try and fix it. We always talk about the bell and the breath, right? We want kids to have a bell go off in their mind when things get to the point where they should be asking somebody for help, even if it's a friend, just somebody. But with a parent, take a breath. Just don't say, I've always told you not to do that. We just say, what can I do? How can I help you?
2: Traffickers are, are masters of manipulation and they are very good at exploiting an unmet need. So that unmet need can look in a lot of different ways. Sometimes that unmet need is an emotional need. It is care. It is attention. It's affection. Other times it's a financial vulnerability. We see a lot of individuals who are trafficked because of a financial situation. They're displaced because of war or conflict in their country of origin. They're, they're very susceptible. to good to be true. Fraudulent employment offers and things like that, but that—that's really what goes into the starting of recruitment is—is is usually looking for what is this need that this person has? How can I meet it, and then use that to exploit them for for either goods or services or through sex trafficking? That's kind of the very shortened version, but that—that's what I would say for for how that kind of starts.
0: Thank you, Anissa. I actually have one here that I think is for you. Can you say a few words about the intersection of trafficking and decriminalization of prostitution? Do you expect that trafficking will increase if prostitution is legalized?
4: I don't know that I have can say that I have a fully thought out answer to it. I know in New York, this is being hotly debated. And there are people who fall on both sides of it, feeling that if it is decriminalized, there will be it will be seen less as a crime, whereas others are saying that there are sex workers who want to be compensated for for, their, for the work they're doing, I, I just know from client experiences, I, I don't know that I have come across any clients who have voluntarily engaged in prostitution. Usually they found they were in financial hardship and it has been maybe a negative effect in terms of law enforcement. That it comes, and I would you know think that they are entering in those situations for, for reasons that are beyond their control and so should be seen in that way. But I think that question of consent is go both ways, but I don't have a clear response to it. And I don't know if others have want to weigh in on that.
2: The position that we take at Sonar, this is a very, very hotly debated topic. And the position that we take at Sonar is generally that we follow the allied survivor leader community, which has been pretty polarized on this issue. And so there's not a clear consensus among survivor leaders about decriminalization legalization and demand it's, it's a very hot button topic so I think it's something that that we could probably all talk about for at least an hour but I will say for us our position is generally to take no position until there's a, a clearer consensus among the survivor community
1: and and I would only jump in and say and obviously this is something that you know we get into the policy realm a lot we have our legislative committee and we wanted to be ready if this came to New Jersey if this issue came to New Jersey so we did a lot of studying And it's, it was kind of sad in the way the last, the thing that really tipped it for us was a study by some economists done in 2012. So it's a very dry, it's not a very emotional and compassionate thing. It's just dry economics, because this is a financial crime. And they studied 150 states, that would include sort of small states and full countries worldwide, where there had been any change in legislation at all, you know, to decriminalize or legalize. And what they saw that in every case, there was a net increase in trafficking as a result of that change. Now, that doesn't mean to say that for some people that initial legalization might have made some people's lives better. But unfortunately, the net result, that extra piece, because the demand increased so much, that the extra need to fill the demand was met by people who were being trafficked. And so we then sort of had to sit, well. We, we are compassionate about everybody. We want everybody's lives to be better. But if there is a net increase, it's not a good thing. And so mm-hmm. that's, we don't make this public policy statement, but we do follow whatever, whatever reports we can that are gonna try to shed light.
3: Probably not the guy to ask because I've only seen it create horror. I've only seen the ACE score go beyond what we see in those people who experience. And so is there people who really benefit from it and are living healthy lives and have a good sense of themselves? Maybe, but in my universe, which I understand is small, that's just not the case. So I'll sit on the sidelines, That's I guess we all are, but my day-to-day experience is high levels of trauma that devastate young people, even those who say, Yeah, well, I had a choice, and we know that they really didn't, and it was explained for those young people under the age of 18, right? it, it is traffic. I've only seen it to create significant trauma in, in young people that we serve. It's not the universe, but it is mine.
0: Wow, what an incredible discussion. Thank you to our panel, really, truly. Thank you for taking the time to educate us on this extraordinarily complex and important issue today. We do plan to do more of these, and we'd love to know if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in the coming episodes. Thank you to our guests for taking the time to educate our listeners about this important topic. And to our listeners, we appreciate you listening in to Jersey Gives a Damn, a community foundation of New Jersey podcast. Please listen, rate, review, and subscribe to the Jersey Gives a Damn podcast.